With that, let's read the passage for today. Today's passage comes from John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. John chapter 1. Uh, we've ended our series on Psalm last week, and today we're starting our new series on the Gospel of John. And I look very much forward to God speaking to every one of us through his words from the Gospel of John. So once again, the passage for today is John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as David just said, we are starting a new teaching series today in the book of John. We are going to look at a number of encounters that people have with Jesus throughout the book. Now, the author John met Jesus very early on in Jesus's ministry. And John was one of Jesus's uh, very close inner circle, one of his three closest disciples. And so he's heard a lot. He's seen a lot, uh, much more than he could write about. And he's very aware that he has an overabundance of material. So the very last thing that he says in his book, in chapter 21, is that there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so John is telling you, I could imagine writing a whole lot of books, more books uh, than, than I know, would know what to do with. I've got that much raw material, and yet John only wrote one book here about Jesus' life. That means he's been very careful about what he's chosen to tell you, and very careful about what he's chosen not to tell you, very selective, and he has a purpose behind that selectivity that he also lets you in on. Chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's very aware that he's not writing everything that he could, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's writing these particular th things and not other things so that what? So that you might believe, so that your faith might get deeper, because these accounts and these interactions we are going to give you everything that you need in order to see Jesus clearly, so clearly that you're going to be moved deeply to, to want more than you already have. John is writing you everything that you will see so that it will not fill your head with information, but so that it will move your heart, so that you'll see enough here that you will risk reaching out to Jesus and trying to relate to him. Why? Because what you've seen gives you confidence that you know that he'll reach back out to you and relate with you. John is telling you things that are going to stir up a hunger in you for an actual interaction with the living God. He's telling you everything that you need for that. 
And he's telling you everything that you need so that you know how to communicate this Jesus to the people around you so that they might believe. It's not just you who needs a deeper relationship with God. It's all the people around you. You see that right now in our society more than ever. We are desperate, both personally and societally, for a real relationship with God. And the people around you need to see that Jesus is not irrelevant. He's not an add-on to an otherwise pretty decently functioning modern life. Our modern society does not function decently or in order. They need to see that Jesus is active, not passive that he inserts himself into people's lives, and that he can handle what's going on in each person's life when he encounters them. See, that's why John doesn't give you just one account of Jesus and then close the book. Instead, he gives you a variety of interactions with people who are all different from each other. And so he shows you what Jesus is like with someone who's young, with someone who's old, whether they're male or female, whether they're religious or not religious. Sophisticated, less so. Powerful on the inside of the, the, the power structures or on the outside. Gives you lots of different looks. And as you go through each one, you start to realize, man, Jesus isn't forcing everybody into the same mold, not down the same path. Instead, Jesus tailors his approach to the person who's in front of him. So the way that he introduces himself, the way that he engages with that person is unique because the person in front of him is unique. You learn, as you read through the book, that Jesus does not mind adjusting himself to individuals, but he engages them based on the need that they have, that they bring to him. Your friends, your relatives need to know that about Jesus, that he's not afraid of diversity. He's not afraid of difference. And we can't afford to communicate him to other people like he's a one-size-fits-all person. We can't reduce him down to a program to an evangelistic strategy, to, to a set of principles or, or maybe several uh, religious talking points. If you do that, if you take this person and you reduce him down, you're going to do two things that you regret. First, you're going to starve your own soul. You won't believe like you need to. You won't experience a relationship with God because you're going to be more interested in relating to principles than you are in relating to a person. But second, you're not going to be of any value to anybody else either. You might actually push people away from wanting Jesus because they're not interested in a wooden God. They're not interested in lifeless principles. It's completely unattractive. It's not what we need. John's solution is to give you a number of encounters that Jesus had with real people. And we're going to spend the next several months through the summer studying them more closely for the same reason that John wrote them. It's so that you and I might believe more deeply, more personally, and so that we would better learn how to communicate this amazing, diverse person that Jesus is to the people around us. Now, diving into chapter 1. Today's account starts off really slowly. There's no tension here. There's no conflict. There's no fireworks. It's just an ordinary day. You look over there, and there's John the Baptist, verse 35. He's standing around with a couple of his disciples. There's no indication that anything momentous is about to happen here. Disciples, they're just what? They're hanging out with him. There's no sign of any discontent with their lives. Why would they be discontent? They're actually part of something really big. John's been attracting crowds of people who come out to hear him preach. He's garnered national attention. The religious authorities have come out to investigate him. He is the celebrity pastor of his day. And the disciples are what? They're right at the heart of everything that's going on. And then John says something. 
Something that these two guys have already heard. They just heard it the other day, just yesterday. John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't seem to have created much of a stir yesterday, but here it is the next day, and he repeats himself in verse 35. Behold the Lamb of God. And this time, something hooks these two guys in a way that it hadn't before. Something grabbed them and made them think, wow, uh, maybe we should look into this a little bit. John the Baptist doesn't tell them to do that. Beyond telling them to look, he doesn't tell them to do anything. But today they're interested in a way that they weren't before, and they're interested enough to actually do something about it. So they follow Jesus, but not too closely. Jesus actually has to turn around in order to see them. They're keeping their distance. They're interested. They're checking him out, but not too closely. And then suddenly they discover Jesus is checking them out. And they realize they've got it all backwards. They thought they were doing the looking. That's what John told them to do. Behold. They thought they were the observers beholding. But here's Jesus, verse 38, looking at them. Only Jesus is not content just to behold, just to observe. He wants an interaction, wants an engagement. That's why he's here, to look for people and to engage them. Not just in crisis moments of life, but in these very ordinary ones, just like this day was for them. As you think about it, you realize this is not a mutual kind of looking. You know, like, okay, God's interested in us and we're equally interested in him. It's not like that. It's much more one-sided. These two disciples had to do some work to behold Jesus. They had to follow him. But they didn't do nearly as much work as Jesus had to do to look at them. Jesus had to leave his father's side in heaven. He had to enter into this world as a baby. He had to live here for decades. And then he had to walk through the middle of their ordinary day at exactly the right time so that John the Baptist would say, look, behold, the Lamb of God, there he is. Jesus has put a whole lot more effort into this encounter than they have, much more effort than they could have. And now that he sees them, he's not holding back. He's already come too far. He's done too much to let this moment pass. So he engages them. He initiates. He asks, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What do you want? What, why are you interested? What's your interest in me? And they're not really sure. They don't have a clearly defined goal in mind. They don't have a specific need that they ask him to meet. They don't have a troubling theological puzzle for him to resolve. They're not real sure why they're here looking. But what they've seen and heard so far is engaging. So they ask for a little bit more. They say to him, where are you staying? And you realize that these two disciples are utterly normal. They're like all the rest of us. See, when people are first interested in Jesus, they're not really sure fully why they're interested. But like the disciples, there's something inside that says, I think I'd like a little bit more. And so we ask in our own ways, Jesus, where are you staying? Can I have a little bit more of you? The disciples ask that, and they take another step toward him. And I love here that Jesus is so gracious. He understands, he translates, where are you staying, to we want more of you. We're not really sure who you are, but we like what we've seen so far, and we'd like a little bit more. Where are you staying? Can we spend some time with you? And Jesus invites them to have a little bit more. He tells them, come, and you will see. Come. Spend some time with me. Get to know me. 
Don't just jump in without any reason for doing so. Don't take a blind leap of faith that's not required. Come and you will see. Come and experience me. You start to realize then that getting to know Jesus is a process. It takes time. Even though God is trustworthy and you should know that and you should want him and you should know why you want him, God doesn't insist on all of that. Instead, he invites you to come and see, to learn to trust him over time. And so these guys do. The two disciples go to where he's staying, verse 39, and they seem to spend the rest of the day with him. We're told that it was around the 10th hour. That would translate to about 4 p.m. for us. And the implication here is that they've spent the whole day with him, probably hung out with him overnight as well. And again, what's happening here, it's, it's just ordinary life, right? Just getting to know somebody, spending time with them. And yet while they're doing that, something happens. They start to catch a glimpse of who they're getting to know. Earlier, verse 38, they called him rabbi. That means teacher. Somebody who could help them understand what life is all about. The next day, however, verse 41, Andrew finds his brother Simon and he says to him, we have found not rabbi, but Messiah. We've found the anointed one of God. We found not just some random teacher. We found someone who's going to set things right for God's people. What just happened there? Jesus just got bigger. He went from rabbi, teacher, to Messiah. Their understanding of him got bigger. That's what Jesus is seeking as he's looking at people. He's not interested in merely being observed, held at arm's length. He wants people to come close and get to know him, to understand what he's like. He wants to reveal himself to them so that they get to see a little bit more of him. God's not interested in playing hide and seek. He wants to be found, wants to be known, wants you to know him. And when you do that, when you start to discover more of his true identity, the same thing is going to happen to you that happened to these guys. He becomes larger in your eyes than he was at first. Because that first glimpse that you got barely is enough to tell you a little bit about him. The more time you spend with him, the more of him that you'll see. You start to think, wow, there, there's no end to this. Spend eternity with an infinite God. And you're going to plumb the depths of him more and more and more over time, more profoundly. It's not that God grows. It's our understanding of him, our experience of him, that starts to catch up just a little bit to where he already is. C.S. Lewis captured this reality in his children's series on Narnia. In one book, Lucy returns to the land of Narnia. She's been there before, and she sees Aslan the lion again. He's the Christ figure in the story. She sees him. She's been away from Narnia for about a year. She's thrilled to see him. She's also surprised. And she says to him, Aslan, you're bigger. He answers, that is because you are older, little one. She asks, not because you are? I am not, he says. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's what the two disciples just discovered. They spent one day with Jesus and realized he's not simply a teacher. He grew. Better said, their understanding of him grew. He's the Messiah. And as they spend more time with him, he's going to grow again. 
Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus, and the very first thing that Jesus says to him, verse 42, is, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And you read that, and, and that is just so weird. You think, who does that? <laughs> who renames people the very first time that they're introduced? If somebody did that to you, you would think they were incredibly arrogant. But nobody there obviously thought that. John wrote it down. You think about that for a moment. You realize if you were making stories up about a God who came to earth, a God who came to love people, would you write something that could be construed as arrogant of him? And you realize, well, of course not. You'd only write this if what? I, I, if it was true, if, if you'd been standing there, if you had eyewitnessed this, you'd only write this if it really happened this way. You wouldn't make something up like this because of how it might make Jesus look. John wrote it down. What's that tell you? It's one of those things that helps convince you that what you're reading is history, not fantasy. Nobody would ever make up something like this. Jesus really met this man, Simon. He called him Peter, and the name stuck. Throughout the rest of the book, when Simon is mentioned, it's almost always as Simon Peter. Almost always the name that Jesus gave him. In other words, the disciples must have seen something in Jesus that said, this isn't arrogance. This is appropriate. This is right. He has the right to do it, and we all accept it. We bow his to his authority so that the man who was Simon is now Simon Peter. And in that moment, John the author is asking, did you see it? Did you see Jesus just get a little bit bigger? This is not just any old teacher. It's not even a special Messiah. There's something really extra special about him. Here is someone standing in front of you who has the authority to rename people, to rename images of God. Someone who has the authority above images of God, someone who uses that authority, and someone who, when they use that authority, everybody else listens to them. This is not someone like any other image of God. This is someone, chapter 1, who's greater already. Jesus just got bigger. Look a little bit more, and he'll grow again. Think about what Jesus said Simon's new name was. Whether you spoke Aramaic and called him Cephas, or Greek and called him Peter, you were saying the same thing, because both Cephas and Peter mean rock. So Jesus met this man and said to him, your name is Rock. And I have to wonder in that moment, what went through everybody else's minds? Because a name like this in that society would have been connected to someone's personality or would have been connected to their calling. You can think back into the Old Testament for a moment. When God changed Abram's name to Abraham, why did he do that? It's because Abraham meant father of a multitude, not man without a son, the new name said something about Abram's new place and role in God's kingdom. His name had to change in order to keep up with what God was already doing. Or when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, it's because Israel means that this man has wrestled with God and overcome, that this man wants God more than he wants anything else on earth. The new name said something about his personality. So imagine these guys standing around Simon Peter thinking, Rock? Seriously? Stable, Jesus. Solid, unwavering, rock. Do, do, do you know anything about Simon? Because as you read about Simon, you realize he's anything but stable. 
Better name for him would have been impetuous. He's always shooting his mouth off. There is no filter between his brain and his mouth. But then as you watch him a little bit longer, you realize there's no filter between his brain and anything else that he does. He dives quickly into things. He gets in over his head. None of those future events that you read about would have surprised anybody who grew up knowing Simon. It's just the way Simon always had been. What would be a surprise would be for someone to say to Simon, your most outstanding characteristic and your place in my kingdom is best summed up by calling you rock. You are going to be a pillar. You're going to be a foundation in my church. That would have been surprising. And yet if you're Peter, Simon, that would have been incredibly appealing. If you're a person who's impetuous, you know that jumping into things foolishly over and over and over again does not give you a good life. It actually ruins your life. But you also know that knowing that it ruins your life doesn't really slow you down the next time there's something foolish to jump into. You just do it. That's what it means to be impetuous. So what would it be like if that was you to hear someone say to you, that's not who you are? You will not always be unstable, flighty. You are rock, stable, solid, dependable, unmovable, firm, enduring. That's what I call you. That's what you're going to be. See Jesus getting bigger here? Revealing more of himself? Again, there's nothing flashy in this encounter. There's no miraculous signs, no wonders. Just Jesus quietly, confidently saying, I came to look for you but not so that I could observe you. I came to reveal myself to you, but not so that you could observe me. I came to relate to you. And in relating to you, I came to transform you. To call you something that right now you are not, but that because I say it, you absolutely will be. I have the authority to rename you, and I have the power to make that new name stick. That's what's happening on these two very ordinary days. God is breaking into ordinary people's worlds, people who struggle with being ordinary, broken human beings, and he's saying to them, you're not alone. I've not abandoned you. I've come to this earth to invite you to know me, and in knowing me, to become what you always wanted to be, to become what you were always meant to be. How about it? Are you ready to behold this Jesus? To look at him? Are you ready for him to look at you, to rename you, to call you something that just absolutely blows your mind, something that surprises you, something that you never thought would be possible, something that you gave up long ago, something, however, that you think, man, if that were possible, I'd really like that. Jesus, I don't want to be called greedy all of my life. I don't want to be known as greedy. I want you to name me generous. And I want you to take your power and your authority and make it stick. Jesus, I don't want to be afraid of what people think of me all my life. Please call me confident. Jesus, I don't want to be sexually broken and immoral, enslaved to every lustful urge I've ever had. Please call me pure. Jesus, I don't want to be addicted to any and every substance that ever has crossed my path. 
Call me self-controlled. I don't want to be depressed. Call me joyful. I don't want to be angry and explosive. Call me patient. I don't want to be driven and restless. Call me content. I don't want to keep throwing myself at people, trying to fit in, doing anything, saying anything, just so people will like me. I don't want to be desperate. Call me wanted. That's what Jesus is offering. That's why he's here. It's not just any rabbi, not just any Messiah. He's the God who knows how much you need him. He knows exactly how you need him. And he doesn't back away from you in disgust. Instead, he comes looking for you to do what? To share himself with you so that he can transform you at your core. How's that sound to you? Is that something that you want to take him up for? Take him up on? Think about this. He did this with Peter. It was just like creating the universe. When he created the universe, he called forth something out of nothing. It's exactly what he's doing in Peter's life too. He's calling into being that which does not exist in this moment. You are rock. But because he said it, that would be more true of Peter, more enduring than all of Peter's brokenness. If he can do that with Peter, he can do that with you. Do you want that? If so, how do you get in on this? How do you know that Jesus is offering that to you? Okay, he offered it to Peter, but how do you know that he's offering that to you? How do you know that he's looking for you? How do you know that he's offering to relate to you, that he wants to transform you? How do you know this applies to you? You know, because just like the disciples, your life changes. Your day suddenly is no longer ordinary. He wants you, and you want him back. He reaches out to you, you reach back. He initiates with you, and you respond. Say, okay, Bill, how how do I do that? Four things in this passage really quickly. First, you realize that you're interested. It's the first step to understanding that he's seeking you. You become aware that inside you're interested in him. Probably not even sure why, but you know that you are. Something has woken up inside that wasn't there before. When that happens, pay attention to it. It's telling you that you're more aware of him in ways that you hadn't been. It's probably not the first time that you've heard about Jesus. It wasn't the first time for these disciples. John the Baptist had said these things before. But this time when he said it, this time was different. Think, well, why is that? Because it takes time to penetrate. It takes time to wonder about. Sometimes you have to hear about Jesus from the same person several times. Other times you have to hear from Jesus, about Jesus from multiple people, multiple different directions. It takes time, it takes repetition. But then after you've heard it for a while, you discover Jesus is now on my radar in a way that he wasn't before, in a way that's new. That's the first indicator that he's on the move looking for you. Something inside of you comes alive to him. You're not content with the the way life is anymore. Life could have been going along great. You could have been content before, but now something has broken in and you're becoming aware that the world is a whole lot bigger than you ever thought it was. You realize that and you discover, actually, I like that. I'm interested. I'm drawn to want a little bit more. I'm moving a little closer. 
That's why if you're sharing what you know about Jesus with your friends and family, don't give up. Keep sharing because God doesn't usually overwhelm people with himself. For most of us, what does he do? He shows up and he shows up and he shows up and he keeps on showing up over and over and over until we start to become aware of him, until we pay attention to him in ways that we hadn't before. That's the first step to a transformed life. Become aware that you're waking up. Second, spend time with him. It's all these guys did. They didn't do anything difficult. They simply acted on their interests. They decided they wanted a little bit more than they already had. And that's enough for Jesus. Again, think about what we know about these guys who follow him, followed him. We only know one of their names. We know that they know almost nothing about Jesus. They're fuzzy even in understanding what it is that they want. And what do you discover? You discover that's enough for Jesus. There's no precondition for coming to him to learn more about him. He doesn't tell you that you have to clean up first, that you have to get your act together, that you have to transform your life. He intends to take care of all of that later. Instead, what does he do? He simply invites you, come and hang out, come and be with me. And as you do that, slowly over time, you start to understand who it is that's really inviting you. See, it, 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 in some sense, it's like any other relationship. You have to be patient with relationships. They don't happen overnight. You have to be patient with this one too. You have to allow yourself to give yourself to the process. Jesus will show you who he is, but you can't get hold of him all at once. You can't do that with an image of God. It takes time to do that with a human being. Why would you think that you could do that with God himself? That's the second step to a transformed life. First, you have to become aware that you're interested. Second, you have to spend time with him, getting to know him. Third, you have to do this in community. Notice here that Jesus is introduced to people, how? By people. He's better understood in the context of people. John the Baptist points Jesus out to the disciples. Jesus doesn't show up to them, make a special appearance to them, introduce himself. He's introduced by someone who already knows something about him. The disciples later hang out with Jesus, how? Together. They learned together. Think, well, how did that happen? Well, maybe one of them asked a question that the other one would not have asked. And as Jesus answered that question, the other one is learning something they wouldn't have learned any other way. Or maybe one of them responded to something that Jesus said in a way that the other one wouldn't. And they're now learning together how? They're learning in community. Together, learning more than they ever would have alone. You really see that interdependency, that necessity of communion, of community when Andrew tells Simon about Jesus. The only reason that Simon knows anything about Jesus is because of Andrew. But then Andrew learns even more about Jesus as Jesus engages Simon. Both of them are learning as they're in this together. If you want to have a transformed life, you can't do it alone. Talk to enough people, you'll start to realize this is a pattern, that people come to know Jesus because of the impact of someone else in their life. It's a little bit like the man who told me that he grew up religious and then he decided, I, I don't want anything to do with that. But then he encountered someone who actually knew God. And he said to me, after seeing them live out their faith, I thought, if that is what Christianity is, not this other thing, but if that's what Christianity is, I am interested in that. Or another man told me, I always kind of wanted to believe. I wanted to have faith. 
but it's not until I ran into another person that I felt like I could. Now, he's not relying on that other person's faith as his own. You can't do that. But he saw what real faith looked like, and he said, I'd like to have that too. It's part of my own story. I met a group of people who, when they praised in church, they weren't just singing. They were worshiping. When they opened up scripture, they weren't reading words on a page. They were listening to someone talking to them. I met them and I was hooked because here finally is what I'd been looking for. A transformed life happens in community. You need others. And let me put a, a, a point on this. You need that now more than ever. Even when you are sick to death of Zoom meetings, when you have Zoom fatigue, you still need to connect with others if you want your faith to grow. So as hard as it is, you need that Zoom fellowship after church. We're not having that today because of the congregational meeting. But you need to plan to be part of that next week. Get snacks for the kids. Organize your world. You need to be part of that if you want to grow. You need to be connected in a CG. And you need to participate, not just sit back and hope that something washes over you. You need to be involved. You need to get involved in the fun and flourishing events, like the book study that's out or the worship night that happened last night. What's true right now, we, we, we can't be in the same place together. But don't let yourself think, well, I guess being together really doesn't matter all that much. It does. You can't grow on your own. God has not put his transformational plans on hold just because there's a virus out there somewhere. He still intends to transform you as he intends to grow his church through you. But that's not going to happen for you. It's not going to happen for the people around you if you're not pursuing him in community. You have to do this with other people. You're part of a body. So number one, become aware that you're interested. Number two, spend time with Jesus, getting to know him. Number three, do this in community. And then fourth, you have to take seriously that there's a claim on you personally and that that claim calls for a response. Jesus didn't ask Simon if he wanted to be Peter. He told Simon. He told him, here's what the program is. Here's my agenda for you. You are going to be rock. Simon then had to decide whether or not to work with that program. Every time that Jesus reveals himself to you, you're going to have to decide are you in or are you out? So if he shows you that he's the rabbi, the teacher who's above all other teachers, you have to listen to him as he teaches. If he shows you that he's the Messiah, not a Messiah, but the anointed one of God prophesied for hundreds of years before his birth, the Messiah who came to rescue his people, then just like Andrew, you have to go around letting other people know, I found the Messiah. He comes with it. If he shows you that he's God, the one who names, who calls things into being that don't exist, you have to accept his lordship. You have to bow to him. You have to obey him. And if he shows you that he's the lamb of God, the one who came to take away the sins of the world, then you have to take seriously that this God wants you. When Jesus invited people to come and see, to be with him, to experience him, the cross, each time he did that, got a little bit closer. Because if he didn't take their sins away, they'd never be able to respond to his invitation. There would always be a barrier between him and them, their sins, that would always keep them apart from him. 
So each time he spent time with people, each time he invited them to have more of them, he simultaneously obligated himself to the cross so that they could respond to his invitation. It's a huge commitment on his part. It's a commitment you have to take seriously. He wanted them that badly. That invitation now comes to you. He wants you just as badly. Are you interested? If so, take him seriously. Spend time with him. Get to know him. Let him rename you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the powerful miracles that you did. Thank you for your very quiet, let me say it this way, your invasion of people's lives. Your invasion to bring them good, not to bring them harm. Your desire to enter into their world, to give them a, a life they could never have imagined on their own. Lord, I pray that we would take that today as precious, that we would not discount that we would long for it, that we would have hearts that do respond to you, that say, oh my God, do more. Do that, Lord, for the glory of your name. Do that for the good of your people. Do that to bring life and light to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.